Hello, my rebels. I've got an exciting story for you today. I learned a new word today, a new phrase, um, and it, I, I learned about it in a bill before the legislature in South Dakota. It's Senate Bill 189, and it creates the offense of riot boosting. And I'll just tell you what that means. It means fancy pants out-of-state environmental extremists coming into a state to block pipelines. Well, guess what? They are now on the hook in a very serious way in South Dakota. It is a great law. I go through it in detail, and I say, we need a law like that up here in Canada. So, you know, get your pens and paper out. You're going to learn a little something about riot boosting. Anywho, that's the show for today. And I just want to say, you, you really should watch it because I'm going to show you some maps today and I'm going to show you a ton of pictures of Kirsty Noem, uh, the governor of South Dakota, hunting varmints and things. And I know, I, I know it's just a, a richer experience than just getting the audio podcast. I know if you're driving or something like that, you can't watch the telly. May I invite you to subscribe to our shows as well? Just go to rebel.media slash shows. Subscribe to premium content. It's eight bucks a month. That's like half a latte. And you get my show every day and you get Sheila Gunn Reed and you get David Menzies and it helps our company stay strong. And if you go to rebel.media slash shows and you type in the coupon code podcast, you get a discount. So everyone's a winner. Anyways, without further ado, here is my audio only monologue about riot boosting. Tonight, the great state of South Dakota shows us the way to handle foreign environmental extremists. It's March 5th, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. North Dakota is a pretty big oil producing state these days. And that's just happened in the past decade or so. The Bakken geological formation, which you can see on this map, is a huge source of oil. It's shale oil, so it's fracked and it's amazing. I know this because it must be amazing because Quebec chooses to import it by railway train from North Dakota, instead of bringing in Alberta or Saskatchewan oil by pipeline. As you can see on, on the map, the Bakken Formation actually extends well into Canada, and it's a pretty big deal up here too, but all the pipelines that would have helped bring that Canadian Bakken oil to market, they've been shut down. Energy East would have been perfect, by the way. The Keystone XL Pipeline too. Now, Obama vetoed that one, and then an Obama judge slowed it down. I'll, I'll, it'll get back up in time. But in the meantime, like I say, there are plenty of railways getting rich off moving Bakken fracked oil, including to Canada. It was Bakken oil that blew up in Lac Megantic, by the way. I got nothing against North Dakota or Bakken or fracking or even against railways. I got nothing against buying things from Americans. I'm, I'm envious of them, actually, and that's my point today. Why can't Saskatchewan sell its Bakken oil that we fracked to Quebec? Because North Dakota, by the way, doesn't pay equalization payments to Quebec, but Saskatchewan and Alberta do, but we can't sell our oil. And it's going to get worse. It's almost like Trudeau is a lobbyist working for North Dakota. I played this clip for you yesterday. It's Catherine McKenna boasting about Bill C-69 and all the new regulations that will apply to new industrial projects, but only in Canada. None of these will be applied to foreign oil imports, either from North Dakota or from Saudi Arabia. Remember this? Project's decisions will be based on science, evidence, and indigenous traditional knowledge. We're also taking a bigger picture look at the potential impacts of a proposed project. Instead of just looking at the environmental impacts, we'll look at how a project could affect our communities and health, jobs and the economy over the long term, and we'll also do a gender-based analysis. Yeah, they're not doing a gender-based analysis on their oil imports, are they? Yeah, so while Canada's oil and gas industry is bleeding, uh, North Dakota's is actually setting new records. Uh, 1.4 million barrels of oil per day. That's more than some OPEC countries. 
There aren't even a million people living in North Dakota. Well, I'm jealous. What can I say? I'm jealous of North Dakota. But there are some things we can learn from the Dakotas. And let me now turn my eye to South Dakota. As you can see, the Bakken doesn't extend that far south, but another oil and gas deposit called the Williston does. It's just a fraction of their northern sister state. It's, it's not a big deal, except in one way. Pipelines. They love building pipelines in South Dakota. They're like the opposite of he, us here in Canada. They love being next to North Dakota. They're not jealous like we are in Canada, where Quebec likes to take equalization payments from Western oil, but doesn't like to take the actual oil. In South Dakota, I think they sort of brag about being next to North Dakota, and they really play up how they're so connected. I like that solidarity. Now, obviously, they're getting rich off it, too, but they're friends. And look at this map. That's the Dakota Access Pipeline. So it's a big pipeline that, that takes North Dakota Bakken oil, and as you can see, it obviously goes south through the state of South Dakota. And you see that um, yellow shape that straddles the border there? That's the Standing Rock Indian Reservation. It's pretty big. That's where there were enormous protests during the Obama years trying to stop a key pipeline called the Dakota Access Pipeline. Huge protests. Even larger than what we've seen in Canada, by the way. We actually haven't seen any huge pipeline protests other than temporary hour-long parades in Burnaby and Vancouver. In Standing Rock, it really was an army. Thousands of people, and they camped out for weeks with Obama's full support, by the way. He basically canceled the pipeline that was a done deal regulatorily by allowing violent protesters to stop it. It's like Trudeau does, really. And remember when our friend, the filmmaker, fellow McAleer, actually went to Standing Rock? It was total lawlessness. Remember this? I see your press I don't have it. The press place was closed. Okay. Well, can, can we see your footage now? then? No, no, sorry. It's open now. Yeah, yeah. yeah we're going to have uh, security. Uh, are you with, are you with the um, I'm, yeah, I'm with the press. Hey, 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 let go, let go, let go. Let go of that, sir. Let go. Sir, let go of that. Stop. Let go. Let go. I know, let go. I understand. Let go. He's in let the go. wrong place to ask that kind of stuff. Let go of the microphone. Let go of the microphone. You gotta let go of the microphone. Let's go to the press box. Property. Let go. Let go. Well, I guarantee you. I spoke to Mike yesterday. I was in here interviewing you yesterday. I have my own camera operator. Hey, wait a minute. Make sure, can let you make go. sure my microphone. his is deleted? He's filming this right here. He's taking it with him. You guys don't have a press pass. I don't. I have no. Uh, you can see there was a ton of people there. Most of those vehicles had out-of-state license plates. There were no cops to be seen. I'll get back to that in a moment. Anyways, that's how it was going to be. Um, they were going to block the pipeline, just like they blocked pipelines up here. It was obviously funded by professional environmentalist groups. Those were not local South Dakotans there. Um, just like in Canada, most protesters weren't Dakotans. Most weren't Aboriginal. Same thing up here. Same thing exactly. Uh, they were going to cut off the Bakken, just like they've cut off the oil sands. And then Donald Trump won the election. And in his first week as president, he signed an executive order clearing those hippies out of the way, proceeding with the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. And by the way, he revived the Keystone XL too, although like I say, an Obama judge has since delayed it. So that pipeline, the Dakota Access Pipeline, the one I showed you on the map there with the Yellow Indian Reservation, that pipeline got built immediately. By the way, Trump greenlit it, as you can see here, in January of 2017. It was operational by June of 2017, five months later, less than five months. Let me read a great little story from Forbes that was published on the first anniversary of the pipeline. Whatever happened to the Dakota Access Pipeline? The Dakota Access Pipeline has much to celebrate on its first year of service. This was written um, June of 2018. For proponents, it shows once again that oil can be safely transported in significant volumes. It also shows that the project created nearly 10,000 jobs during construction, which pumped millions of dollars into local communities. Landowners received $189 million in easement payments last year, while state and local governments received a combined $55 million in property taxes. That, that's amazing. Just, I think that's probably the, the largest property tax payer in the state. 
I mean, obviously, it's got a great safety record. I mean, it's a state-of-the-art pipeline built in 2017. And most importantly, it has allowed North Dakota to become as big as an OPEC country. That could have been us. But we elected Justin Trudeau. Again, I am so jealous of both South and North Dakota. And of course, taking all that oil off of railways and putting it in a safe underground pipe, that's just smart. And it eases demand on the railways, so that helps farmers who need to ship stuff on railways. So it's win, win, win all around. Yes, I'm jealous. I wish that was us. I wish we had the Energy East Pipeline to New Brunswick. I wish we had the Northern Gateway Pipeline to Kitimat. I wish we had Keystone Excel going all the way down to Texas. I wish we had the Trans Mountain Extension. We've got none of that. We're missing our moment. You know, America is now the world's largest oil producer. It's now a net exporter of oil. I never thought I would see that in my life. It's happened in a couple of years. Pretty soon it just won't need our oil sands. Thanks, Trudeau. But let me tell you something I just learned about South Dakota today. Like I say, they have a tiny fraction of the oil and gas activity compared to the northern, to North Dakota. But they're not jealous. They like being part of the action. They like building pipelines. They respect their northern neighbors. They, they get some of the benefits too. But look at this. This is my favorite news of the day. Look at this bill proposed by the new Republican governor of South Dakota named Christy Noem. It's Senate Bill 189, if you're keeping track. And I'll just read it. For an act entitled, an act to establish a fund to receive civil recoveries to offset costs incurred by riot boosting, to make a continuous appropriation, therefore, and to declare an emergency. Riot boosting. Have you ever heard that term before? I haven't. It's exactly what it sounds like, though. Let me read a little more. It's, it's a pretty short bill. It's only, it's only three pages, this proposed law. Uh, one page is practically all just definitions. They define riot. We all know what a riot is. And then they define riot boosting. I love that word. Here, let me, let me read about riot, riot boosting. In addition to any other liability or criminal penalty under law, a person is liable for riot boosting jointly and severally with any other person to the state or a political subdivision in an action for damages if the person participates in any riot and directs, advises, encourages, or solicits any other person participating in the riot to acts of force or violence does not personally participate in any riot, but directs, advises, encourages, or solicits other persons participating in the riot to acts of force or violence, or upon the direction, advice, encouragement, or solicitation of any other person uses force or violence or makes any threat to use force or violence if accompanied by immediate power of execution by three or more persons acting together and without authority of law. Okay, now I think that's pretty plain English. It was a little bit repetitive, actually. Uh, first of all, it says that riot boosting doesn't replace any existing crime. It, it creates a new offense. Second, it says that riot boosting means if you whip up a riot, if you direct it, if you advise it, if you encourage it, those are the words, you don't actually have to be a rioter yourself. You just have to incite it. Or if you're part of it and there are three or more of you and you threaten violence and you have the power to, do, to immediately do it, they're going to get you for riot boosting. So this is going after the Gerald Butzes and the Tsipora Bermans of the world, the World Wildlife Funds, the Greenpeaces, the Sierra Clubs. This is going after that Standing Rock Reservation mass riot. Because all of a sudden riots aren't about fundraising opportunities for Greenpeace anymore. That's, that's what they do, right? They commit a crime and then they fundraise off it. No, 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 no. Now, under this riot boosting law, if you're going to have some violent protest, it just became a horrible, horrible trap for your environmental group. Penalties, offenses, legal troubles, huge fines. Let me read some more. A person is subject to the jurisdiction of the courts of this state, South Dakota, for riot boosting that results in a riot in this state, regardless of whether the person engages in riot boosting personally 
or through any employee, agent, or subsidiary. Holy cow, how awesome is that? See, the Tides Foundation is headquartered in San Francisco, as are many other eco-extremists. Sapora Berman's group is in Washington State, I believe. The Rockefeller Brothers Fund obviously is in New York. But now all of them are liable in South Dakota if they boost riots in South Dakota. I love it. I'm going to read some more. It's a very short bill. I've almost read the whole thing to you. The plaintiff in an action for riot boosting may recover both special and general damages, reasonable attorney's fees, disbursements, other reasonable expenses incurred from prosecuting the action, and punitive damages. A defendant who solicits or compensates any other person to commit an unlawful act or to be arrested is subject to three times the sum that would compensate for the detriment caused. Triple damages? So if you do a million bucks worth of damage to a pipeline, get ready to pay triple that. Three million. Yeah, Greenpeace can stay away. Just one more quote. It's, it's a short law. I've read almost the whole thing to you. There is established in the state treasury the Riot Boosting Recovery Fund. Money in the fund may be used to pay any claim for damages arising out of or in connection with a riot or may be transferred to the Pipeline Engagement Activity Coordination Expenses Fund. So companies can be compensated. I like that. So I think this contemplates either a private prosecution from a pipeline company or the state of South Dakota going after the bad guys and putting their cash in a piggy bank for anyone who was harmed. How amazing is that? Hey, I have a very, very, very simple question for you. If you were Greenpeace, if you were Zipporah Berman, if you were any of these hucksters on the hard left, would you do your rioting in South Dakota anymore once this law is passed? Or would you go somewhere else without a riot-boosting law, like maybe Portland, Oregon? Yeah, exactly. That proposed law, that bill, is the handiwork of this woman, Christy Noem, the amazing new governor of South Dakota, smart tough. I can't get enough of these pictures of her hunting and weightlifting and shooting varmints because all I can imagine is how in my daydreams she would personally go out there and personally arrest and handcuff these soy latte drinking vegetarian peaceniks with her bare hands and throw them into the clink, the hoose gal. Now maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just thinking of that great TV show called Man Tracker. Did you ever see that one? Where that strong, silent type cowboy, he tracks down them city boys in the forest and rounds them up. Except this gal's the governor, not a reality TV star. I wish we had a premier like she is a governor. I wish we had riot-boosting laws in Canada. I love saying that, riot-boosting. Maybe Saskatchewan can pass a riot-boosting law. Not that there's a lot of environmental protesters in Saskatchewan. Maybe Alberta can, too, once Rachel Notley is defenestrated next month. Maybe Doug Ford should, too. You know, I have personally witnessed with my own eyes sabotage by the Sierra Club committed against the Line 9 oil pipeline owned by Enbridge near Hamilton. I was there. This footage I took when I was at the Sun. Um... And, and then there's the Rexton riot. I didn't take this footage, but I did attend later on. This is the Rexton riots here. There's a Rexton riots in New Brunswick a few years back, also whipped up by the Sierra Club. I have seen sabotage all over Ontario, and the police do nothing because they don't have the riot boosting laws. Yet we might not have the pipelines like South Dakota does, and that probably won't get us the pipelines. Uh, we probably have to wait until Trudeau's gone. But there is no reason why self-respecting Canadian provinces on their own can't pass riot-boosting laws just like my new superhero, Christy Nome is doing in South Dakota. Who knows? Maybe if we ask her nicely, she'd come up here and help us arrest that David Suzuki and his band of dirty hippies, personally, and sue him for riot-boosting. Hey. A fella can dream. Stay with us for more.
welcome back. I want to show you, I mean, Twitter's so amazing. I watched in real time as a woman smashed the historical world record for deadlifting 500 pounds. Let me show you the tweet. I'll read it and then we'll play the video. It's by Zuby, a rapper who says, I keep hearing about how biological men don't have any physical strength advantage over women in 2019. So watch me destroy the British women's deadlift record without trying. P.S. I identified as a woman whilst lifting the weight. Don't be a bigot. And then we'll click the video and show you. That's 500 pounds. I should tell you that that same man, he's a man, if you didn't get the joke yet, he's a man saying he's identifying as a woman. He went on to break every single women's weightlifting record, bench presses. Uh, he was lifting over 500 pounds, and he was saying he was stunning and brave throughout. He did it as a joke. But that's the thing, that joke has become reality in many sports competitions. And joining us now via Skype from Montreal to talk about it is our friend Barbara Kay, a columnist at the Post Millennial and National Post. Great to see you again, Barbara. That was a joke by a rapper, that guy Zuby. He's, he's an amateur weightlifter. He's pretty good at it, obviously. But he showed that he could be the number one weightlifter in the UK if he just lied about being a woman. That lie is happening every day, though. It is unfortunately in uh, in powerlifting, in weight uh, wrestling, uh, running, cycling, all the individual sports. Uh, real women are losing out to uh, men who identify as women or who say they identify as women. Uh, these uh, biological men would be middle of the pack or nobodies in a in a men's contest, uh, but they are on the podium with medals. Uh, in a women's competition, and uh, our sports associations are saying that's okay because it's all about inclusion. Yeah, how ironic that's truly Orwellian to say inclusion means driving women's out of women's sport. Here, let's put up on the screen your article for the Post Millennial. Canadian sports experts embrace misogynistic practices to please trans activists. And you can see there, it's just so obvious, you can see a biological woman getting crushed in a sprint by a biological man who says, no, 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 I'm a girl. And if you don't agree, I'm a girl, you're a bigot. This is happening throughout Canada, isn't it? Yes, it's happening in Canada, in the United States. Uh, it, it's happening everywhere in the West. And uh, it will pretty soon, if it isn't already, come to a crisis point where either the women athletes themselves, I saw one, I saw one, uh, tweet, I think it was, somebody quoting a young girl who said she was so discouraged and demoralized because in the tryouts, she knew, she says, I won't make it. I know who's trying out. So, uh, you know, there were two people ahead of her, uh, both biological males. And so she knew she wasn't even going to get into the into the heats. So that girl is probably going to leave that sport uh, very discouraged. And to me, this is uh, in the sporting world, what I consider uh, pretty criminal, that yeah. she should that, that, a, that a, a girl with talent, skills, obviously, you know, would have done probably pretty well. Uh, otherwise, has actually been uh, erased from the sport. Yeah. I mean, the whole concept of sportsmanship, I mean, if it was win at all costs, if this was like a military mission uh, where you must succeed, you must do anything, sure, cheat, lie, do what. I mean, there are still laws of war. I mean, we're not terrorists, we're not pirates, but th that's not what sport is. Sport is not win at all costs, do whatever it takes, cheat. There are some places, some extreme areas of life where that is appropriate. Not sport. Sportsmanship, sportsmanlike. These are words we take out of sport into the rest of life to mean a fair competition where the best person wins. If well, you're, yeah. Go ahead. That's the logo. That's the logo of the sporting world is literally play fair. And, you know, you've seen... Look, we know what a big business sports is. We've seen the hundreds of thousands of fans that go out to watch these games. People take sports extremely seriously. They pay big money. Uh, and even in the amateur world, people will come out for junior, you know, for uh, uh, young people's leagues. This is They take it very, very seriously. And the one thing that drives them nuts is, is cheating, right? Yeah. I mean, you someone cheats, 
uh, people get hysterical because it's it's uh, that's not what they came for, and it's the one place left in the world uh, where it is a level supposedly a level playing field. So uh, this is where the rubber hits the road. I mean, really, we have to deal with this craziness. Um, or else we're, we're basically driving women out of sport. Yeah, it, and it's that pure meritocracy where everyone knows the rules of the game, and if you can win under those rules, people salute. It's one of my favorite things about the meritocracy of sport is how it integrated parts of America because black athletes yeah. in a level playing field, no cheating, no biases, could be extremely successful. In fact, disproportionately successful in some sports because it was fair. And here we're undoing the egalitarianism of sport. Uh, and by egalitarianism, I mean, everyone knows the rules. Everyone's on the same playing field. Now show your courage, your endurance, your practice. This just destroys that. That's not even sport anymore. Yeah, you're right. And listen, categorization is what makes for a, a, for a level playing field. Uh, for example, in the Paralympics, which is, of course, uh, for disabled athletes, there are something like 36 categories. Uh, if you're in a wheelchair, if you're not in a wheelchair, if you have uh, the use of both your legs or one of your legs, you know, they, they break it down into if you have uh, the use of your forearms but not your whole arm. And, and so they make it very, very even so that you won't have one disabled athlete who's less disabled than someone else competing against him. So why are we not doing the same thing? Uh, I have no objection. To their opening up two new categories, trans women and trans men. Yeah. I have no problem at all with that. Yeah. Uh, and let trans women compete against trans women, trans men compete against trans men. Um, I mean, it would be foolish in a way because there'd be so few, but that at least would level the playing field. Yeah. Uh, so. And I suspect yeah. you wouldn't have a lot of people enter it because they're only entering it to win. This is now to, to build on your Paralympics analogy. It would be as if a fully abled, like a non-disabled athlete said, you know what, I'm not winning, but I'm going to go compete in the Paralympics against those guys in wheelchairs, and I'm going to crush up. It's, I mean, well, the by whole... the way, there are people that do identify as trans-abled. <laughs> yeah. they actually, oh, there are people that are able-bodied that sit in wheelchairs because they identify as disabled. Yeah. And that is actually, maybe there's fewer of them than <laughs> transgender people, but that is a true uh, kind of dysphoria. And they would not be allowed, I sure hope yeah. they wouldn't be allowed, yeah. into the Paralympics. Jeez. You know, it, when I think of this, this is serious now because soon there will no, be no such thing as women's sport. I mean, uh, this is coming younger and younger. wouldn't surprise me soon if this hits high schools. And guys would joke, like that Zuby, that rapper that we opened with, lifting 500 pounds, he was doing it as a prank, to make a point, as a joke. He wasn't actually entered into a contest. He was just at his gym, as you can see. But how long before some 16-year-old prankster guy says, you know, I'm not really good enough to make uh, the, the men's team, but I'm going to crush it against the girls. That's not, that's not a hypothetical. Here's a story from the Daily Mail where the Australian women's national team lost 7-0 to to an under-15s boys team. So this is the best women in all of Australia, yeah. and they lost 7-0 to, to, to some young teenagers. And I'm not blaming them. I'm not laughing at them. I'm just saying that's biology. It's demonstrably, I mean, it's so demonstrable, it's so obvious. Uh, when you get ideologues making the rules for sport, then you're in a very bad place. And I was uh, motivated to write that, uh, that piece because the Canadian Centre for Ethics, Ethics in Sport, a kind of ironic name, just issued guidelines. Uh, to be used in amateur sport uh, in universities, and 56 universities have now taken on these guidelines as their operating manual for trans sports or trans people in sports. Um, and they have reduced the what what were the gatekeeping uh, kind of standards used to be that you you know you couldn't go into the sport as a trans person unless you had been on hormones for a year or two uh, to show that you were really committed to transitioning now according to the canadian center for ethics and sport uh you are not even allowed to ask a person if they say i identify as a woman i am a woman i'm a girl you're not even allowed to ask huh. how long have you been in this 
position and uh, can you offer some proof that you've been socially transitioning or are you on hormones? You're not even allowed to ask if they're on hormones and they don't have to be on hormones in order to compete. Not only that, but somebody is allowed to compete one season as their biological sex, if maybe they're good in one sport as as their biological sex, and then they're allowed the next season to compete as the as the sex they allegedly identify uh, with, so that they can actually go back and forth. So, so what kind of a trans person yeah. uh, is that? Who well, that's actually, a trans trans. That's a trans yeah. trans. Don't you know? You know what? I'm yeah. I'm not even kidding. Zuby, that uh, that's the name of that rapper who listed lifted 500 pounds at the very beginning of the segment. According to what you've just described, the rules you've just described by the Center for Ethics and Sport, he could, he could show up and actually make that prank real without, without getting his twig and berries cut off, without going on any meds. He could really do what he did there. That's insane. You know, Barbara, the, the TV show Seinfeld has been off the air for, I don't know, 15 years or so. But I remember when Kramer, the goofy guy, uh, well, let me let the clip do the talking. Here's a clip of Kramer uh, foreshadowing the future of sport. Take a look. Are you prepared for Kumite? Yes, Sensei. Fight that. Hajime, begin! So Kramer, a 40-year-old man, six feet tall, bravely dispatches a bunch of school children, and he's so proud of himself. That's, that was a comedy. That was a fiction. That was a, that was a lark. That was what an idiot. That is the state of sport today. Now, that was age, but really there's no difference. Age, gender, weight category. Like you say, category. That joke is reality. Yeah, I mean, look, it's, I'm not saying that every single biological male uh, is going to win automatically, you know, any sport that he goes into. That, that's, that's not the case. But the, but the case is that he, he had the odds of him doing much, 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 much better than if, if that biological male were uh, competing against his genetic peers uh, are, you know, very much enhanced. And certainly the odds of getting a medal are very much enhanced. I, I don't understand um, how, and these, a lot of these people making these rules are men. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not the ones that are being threatened. Male athletes don't have to worry about trans men yeah. taking away their medals. Right. Uh, and they're making the rules for women and they're saying inclusion uh, they say they are women. We're taking them at their word, hmm. but they're really saying we are privileging psychology, feelings over uh, physiology and and the body. But sports is not about feelings. Mm-hmm. Sports is about the human body and its limitations. Yeah. And uh, when you have an entire category, one whole species, half the species uh, is 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 genetically one kind of human being and and the other that's your categorization yeah. that's what you start with yeah. so uh this is just a travesty of justice for women barbara you've been very generous with your time but i'd like to show one more image because uh it, it's two overlapping bell curves and i'm just going to keep this up on the screen for a minute so a bell curve is just a standard distribution and this is for height so if you have a thousand women your average woman is, let's say, five foot four or whatever it is. And if you have a thousand men, let's say your average man is five foot nine or whatever. Now, you're going to have some distribution. That's what a bell curve is. As you can see, um, a couple of standard deviations to the left. You have really short people and to the right, very tall ones. Put that up just for one more second, because I want to show there are obviously some men. And this is for height, but this could apply to strength, speed, whatever. Um, there are obviously some men have, quote, female height and some women have male height. There are obviously some men shorter than some women. And your average woman isn't that much shorter than your average man. But remember, we're talking about sports. We're talking about the elites. So we're talking about the top 1%, the top 1% of 1%, 
the best in the world. So you're talking about people all the way over on the right-hand side of the distribution. And so go over to 185 centimeters high. This is in centimeters, apologies. So the number of women who are six feet tall is so small compared to the number of men. How about six foot six? How about seven feet tall? Seven feet tall is not even shockingly rare. It's not even rare in the NBA. I don't even know if there's a seven foot tall woman in the world. So that's my point is that when you're talking about ordinary differences between ordinary people, your average woman's a couple inches shorter than your average man. Your average woman's a little bit less strong than your average man. And like I say, there's some women who are stronger than men. But when you're talking about the elites, the fastest runner, the, the strongest lifter, you're way, way, way over to the right on this distribution. Do you see my point, Barbara? That it's not sure, discrimination. I mean, the, the fastest woman in the world, uh, there's only 10, you know, is, is as isn't going to win against the fastest man. She's going to win against uh, the lowest 10% of men. You know, she can beat the the uh, the slowest 10% of men, but she can't get anywhere near. Look, it's not just height. It's it's uh, musculature. Yeah. It's heart capacity. It's lung capacity. Uh, it's and it's all those things combined. And then it's all those sure. things combined. Uh, one athletic association, by the way, this was even quoted by the uh, Canadian Centre for Ethics and Sport, even quoted one uh, athletic association that admitted that males in general have a 10 to 12 percent advantage of physical strength uh, and speed over women. So they, they, they actually admit it and then say, but it's not enough of an advantage uh, to, to um, override the need for inclusion. That's basically their their um, their stance is that it's much it's more important to accommodate a psychological need, a feeling, mm -hmm. uh, than uh, the need to level the playing field for women. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is so shocking to me uh, that I do not understand. I've I've been tweeting my article to the sport minister at Kirsty Duncan, you know, several times and yeah. saying, do something about this, you know, yeah. because. She would have the she would have the authority to take that uh, set of guidelines and tear them up, which she should do. Yeah. I got one last question. You've been very generous with your time, and thanks for listening to me go on about the two bell curves. That's okay. <laughs> um, that was important. How's this going to end? Because I know um, there's a. I mean, women's sport. We're we're taught that women's sport. Let women have. You know, women can do it too. Girls do it too. Uh, women's league, girls' league, it's great. I mean, women have really only had full access to sport for only a few decades, if that. I mean, the first woman who ran the Boston Marathon, that wasn't until only about 50 years ago. So the era of women in sport has been very brief. I think it's coming to an end. I mean, how will mums and dads of girls, how will they react when it's effectively women's sport. I mean, I'm not even talking about the elite athletes. I'm talking about girls in high school, girls mm -hmm. in college, who just want yeah. to have a sport, camaraderie, sportsmanship, physical exercise, team spirit, and then some loser guy says, oh yeah, I'm one of the girls now, oh, and by the way, I'm coming to your change room. How will this react? Because so far, I haven't seen a lot of reaction from the normals. Yeah, it's been almost like people are paralyzed because they're so afraid of being called transphobic that they don't quite know how to deal with this. But I think it's very encouraging that Martina Navratilova, uh, the uh, arguably one of the greatest athletes of all time, um, who was kicked off her group, Athlete Ally, this advocacy group for LGBT, which, by the way, is one of the consulting groups for the Canadian Centre for Ethics and Sport. Uh, they kicked her off the editorial board and they, they, they withdrew her ambassadorship uh, because she said, this is cheating. She said it's cheating for biological males to be competing against women. Uh, and I hope uh, Martina will take up this cause and tell young athletes you're not transphobic if you're acting in your own interests. Uh, it's not up to you to make the world perfect for, for transgendered people. Uh, it's not up to you uh, to include these people at, at, at your sacrifice, with you sacrificing your careers, your ambitions uh, to their feeling or their psychological state. Some, I mean, I, I really hope she does this, and I hope other athletes come on board too. No, not just women athletes, 
men, male athletes that that understand uh, that women are getting, uh, you know, shafted here. And I think maybe if some big names get together and and start, you know, promoting this cause, that some sanity might return to to these associations. Permit me to tack Permit on to 60 tack. more seconds, and I, I'm sorry. I, I love to chat with you, Barbara, and, and you make me think of so many things. I see in the news today that um, a largely Muslim school in the United Kingdom has succeeded in banning the LGBTQ curriculum from the class. They simply had a protest, and then they took all their kids out, and the school uh, board caved, and no sure. one called anyone a homophobe because they're Muslim. Yeah. And I think maybe that's where we'll see this, is when some trans athlete says, I'm joining the halal girls hijab <laughs> team, and all the, all the um, Muslim men said, ah, no you ain't. And that, <laughs> maybe that's a strong enough counterforce. I mean, I, literally today I saw this news about this school in the UK that said, all right, so much for the LGBTQ uh, curriculum, if they won't stand up, for that LGBTQ curriculum against Islamic uh, Sharia teaching, they're certainly not going to. Uh, I I think that's where the trans agenda. Well, you know, wall. this whole thing, intersectionality. Uh, sometimes it's very hard to choose. You know, between your uh, victim classes, right? Yeah. So, uh, it, but you're absolutely right. Nobody uh, said boo about the fact that you know nobody called them homophobic because they were Muslim, mm -hmm. and uh, as we know. Uh, when Christians do it, uh, they are called homophobic. Yeah. But, you, you, you know, you're right. This whole thing is about um, about victimhood and who's who's got the rights and who's got, you know, an inclusion, inclusion. Uh, you can't include everybody. Sometimes you have to make a choice. Sometimes you have to choose the side you're on. And if it's women's sports, choose women. Yeah. That's the message. Robert, you're great. Thanks for giving so much of your time. I, I tell you, I love talking with you. You're always writing the most interesting things. Let's put your column up on the screen just for one more moment. It's published in the Post Millennial. The headline is Canadian sports experts embrace misogynist practices to please trans activists. Barbara Craig, great to see you again. Thanks, Ezra. All right. Stay with us. More ahead on The Rebel. Hey, welcome back to my monologue yesterday about Canada being on the brink of a recession. Paul writes, the Trudeau liberals have crippled the energy sector, botched trade negotiations and sorry, are pushing ahead with an idiotic carbon tax, have run up a mountain of debt, etc. The mainstream media has been covering for them at every turn, so of course they're surprised. Yeah, and of course, the, the strange thing about journalists is that their own industry, uh, I suppose we're in it too, is utterly being crushed, not by the waxing and waning of the economic cycle, but by technological change. Um, you don't have to get your news from the mainstream media anymore. You can go elsewhere, either that's more convenient or that doesn't hate you like the mainstream media does. So yeah, the funny thing about journalists is in some ways they're utterly disconnected with economic reality, especially if you work for the state broadcaster. But also I, I find in my experience journalists are so illiterate and enumerate about economic matters. I mean, I, I think even most business writers in journalism, don't know anything about business. Um, so yeah, I think that part of it is to, they're immune from things like a factory closing until of course they all get laid off at Buzzfeed or Vice. And I think that journalists like to pretend they're just observers hovering over the world, not of it, not in it. So yeah, I, I just think mainstream media journalists are overwhelmingly um, inappropriate guides or warnings or canaries in the coal mine for an economic recession. I think we're heading into one. Now, maybe I'm just a pessimist, but what convinced me we're going into a recession was Donald Trump's Buy American executive order, which, by the way, no Canadian journalists have written about. So that just goes to my first point. They're clueless. Harley writes, recession and 60 cent dollar are coming sooner rather than later. Should be just in time for the election. Yeah, it couldn't happen to a nicer guy. You know, of course, it's not about him. Of course, it's about us. The economy is all of us. And um, but again, you know, I, I look at his inner circle. They're they're sheltered from the economic reality of the world. Most of Trudeau's cabinet have never had a real job in the private sector. 
Um, they're <clears throat> full-time scammers like Miriam Monsef. They're full-time government hangers-on like Catherine McKenna. Full-time lifelong politicians like, like Ralph Goodale. There's no actual private sector entrepreneur. Even the women we've been talking about lately, Jody Wilson-Raybould, uh, Jane Philpott, those are lifelong public sector types. So they just don't know, don't care about the private sector. They're so insulated from it. You know, I've talked to you before about uh, a test that Charles Murray does. He says, how thick is your bubble? And what he means by that is, do you ever meet how the other side goes? And I, I, think, I think most people in the Trudeau caucus and the Trudeau cabinet have never been on a factory floor other than maybe for a second at some solar scheme plant. Like, they, like I don't think they know what real working people are like. Not, not that I'm particularly working class. I mean, I'm, I'm in the media myself. But my point is that I, I think there's such an isolation and an insulation. Um, there, it's, like the, it's like those kids in the, you know, the virus containment bubble, the bubble boy that never is allowed to, to go into the world. I really think Trudeau lacks any connection to the real world. All political parties do, generally. But I think Trudeau's is the worst. All right, next letter. On my interview with Manny Monodegrino on the resignation of Jane Philpott and the SNC-Lavalin scandal, Marjorie writes, Why is it the women are the ones standing by their principles and ethics, and we have not heard from any of the men? Where are they? There must be some in the Liberal Party who are ready to resign over the shenanigans of Justin and his latest scandal. I'm still waiting for someone like Mark Garneau to lead a revolt. Yeah, I don't know why Mark Garneau isn't. He's, he's a name that I would think of. Also, um, here's a theory. I think, first of all, it just is a coincidence that the Justice Minister, the Attorney General herself, is a woman. Um, so it's not like of all the people who fought back, it was a woman. No, the, the pressure was put on a woman and she had the courage to resist. And I think uh, my theory is that she was, that she had a lot of heart-to-heart -heart talks with people she could trust in Ottawa as a genuine friend. Now, you know the saying, if you want a friend in Ottawa, get a dog. But I think that, I think that some politicians actually have heart-to-heart -heart friends. And I'm not, I'm not disparaging, but I, I, I'm not condescending. I'm saying I actually think that Jody Wilson-Raybould confided in Jane Philpott along the way here. Right? Because they're both in cabinet, so they can talk about cabinet confidences. I think Jody Wilson-Raybould said, what do I do? What do I do with the bosses? Like, I think, like, wouldn't you say, who can I possibly talk to? Well, you got to talk to someone who's also in cabinet. Well, that's a small number. Okay, maybe not that small. There's 30 of them. But you're not going to talk to some airhead like Marianne Monsef or some cult-like zombie follower like Catherine McKenna. So maybe you talk to Jane Philpott, the, the other grown-up who again, maybe they're friends because they're women, but I think, I think that Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould had been talking about this for months. And I think Jane Philpott knows a lot more about the scandal than we realize. And I think she saw, oh, Trudeau's just gonna brazen this out. This is so bad, it's getting worse. I'm sick of this and I know what they've done. And they're lying. And she, she, she just said enough of that. So I, I think it might be a coincidence that they're women. I share your disappointment in Mark Garneau. But look, most politicians are just politicians. They're looking for the odds. If the odds turn against Trudeau, if he looks like he's going to fall, watch for everybody to abandon ship other than the ultimate cult leaders like or cult followers like I, I put Catherine McKenna in that category. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit disappointing that there haven't been more. Betty writes, what will Gerald Butt say on Wednesday? Will he testify that all Canadians, and especially Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott, are Nazis? Yeah, that's what makes it tough, because uh, Trudeau's a uh, privileged white male, and Gerald Butts is a privileged white male. They're both from Montreal. They're both uh, elites. It's a little bit tough for them to play the male feminist card against two women, or the race card. I'm not sure if Jane Philpott is Aboriginal. I'm not sure. I know, obviously, Jody Wilson-Raybould is. So, yeah, what are they going to do? Um, <laughs> and of course, they were star candidates in their own way, and they were both recruited by Trudeau and Butts in there directly. So, yeah, I don't know how they're going to do it. And here's the thing. Um, I think that, as I mentioned, both Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott know a lot more than they have revealed. And if Gerald Butts lies, why wouldn't he lie? If he lies and they have the proof of it, 
I think they're going to nuke him again. I think they're going to nuke him again. And maybe someone else will quit if they say, oh, you're still not coming clean. Anyways, um, we'll find out soon enough tomorrow, right? Walter writes, I commented on the CBC website on the article about Jane Philpott resigning. They disabled my comment. All I stated was, Ezra Levant was right about Trudeau all along. Unbelievable. And here's a screenshot. You can see it there. It says content disabled. You can see the CBC headline at the top, Jane Philpott resigns from cabinet. You can see the comments below and you can see Walter Craig says Ezra Levant was right about Trudeau all along. You can see that content was disabled. Now I understand disabling content if it's profane, if there's swears in it. Maybe if it's spam, like a commercial ad for something. If it's very abusive or even if it's off topic. But the CBC is literally going through its comment section. Imagine that. So they're hiring someone. The CBC is taking your tax dollars to hire someone (laughs) to go through the comments. Okay, get rid of any F words, get rid of any profanity, get rid of any junk spam, but also get rid of anyone who thinks Ezra's good. Just get rid of them. (laughs) Holy moly, thin skin. Hey guys, if you give me $1.5 billion a year, um, I'd be too happy rolling around like Scrooge McDuck in the 1.5 bill to care if you said, um, you know, Ezra, one of your critics is right. Okay, man, you can be right, and I'll have the 1.5 bill. That's what I'd say if the roles were reversed. Imagine how panicky, thin-skinned, hypersensitive, just paranoid you are if you can't let a Canadian citizen, a taxpayer who helps fund their $1.5 billion, if you can't even let them say, you, you know Ezra's right. Censor him! Oh my gosh. I think they're in a panic. Well, folks, that's our show for today. What do you think about riot boosting? What do you think about Christy Noma? I'm too excited about both, I admit it. But boy, wouldn't it be great to get one of those laws here in Canada. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night, and keep fighting for freedom. 